Welcome to Parlay Me Power Players. This is a podcast that explores the latest entrepreneurs, startups, founders, business leaders, and even enterprises that are changing the game. We call them the disruptors. You might see them as your mentors or maybe even your colleagues, but we are so excited to bring to you each week someone we find either fascinating, progressive, or someone that's really making changes in all kinds of industries. We are agnostic in what we cover, so we cover everything from mobility to AI to food and produce, you name it, we cover it. But most importantly, we want to showcase to you entrepreneurs that are really making a difference and making the world a better place. So hi guys, welcome to Parlay Me Power Players. And we have today, I will always say this most episodes, a very special guest, but we have an extraordinary guest today. We actually have James Ultra. And now James, um, I have a bit of a bio here on you, so bear with me. Um, I did actually steal a lot of it from your LinkedIn profile. So I figured you're probably the best person to to actually talk about yourself. So (laughs) here we go. Um, Well, I would say you're somewhat of a godfather of podcasting and you have millions of listeners with over 40 million downloads. Uh, Forbes magazine has described you uh, in 2016 as James Altschler, the most interesting man in the world. So people, we've got him here today on the podcast. Thank you so much, January, for inviting me. You you forgot to mention, you've interviewed me once before at... uh, the 2016 Propelify event in New, the New Jersey uh, uh, Tech whatever organized it. Yes, indeed. Propelify. That was a lot of fun. Yes, that was a lot of fun. I randomly found, I think it was about 40 degrees um, in Hoboken, of all places, um, the day of Propelify, and I ran into you, and you were so kind to give me your time to interview you. And since then, yeah, we fast forward to today, um, and Four years later, and I can definitely say we're both still heavily entrenched, entrenched and passionate. I'd say about the entrepreneur community, right? <laughs> Absolutely, I would say, I would say actually, I am more intrigued than ever with entrepreneurship because I don't know. I haven't been this interested in entrepreneurship in a, in a long time, actually. It's exciting times. I don't know about you, but this pandemic has really fueled me even more <laughs> it's, like, it's made me like I mean so many things are either coming to an end or they're changing or they're it's it's a really it's a state of uh, flux at the moment the whole world but it's very interesting for an entrepreneur the mind just boggles um, in times like this yes yes so um really quick some other fun facts about you James um you're a top 10 LinkedIn influencer you're you're a writer and you're an entrepreneur, you're a chess master, uh, you're a venture capitalist, um, you've started and sold several companies, you're um, an author of Wall Street Journal, uh, best-selling books like called Choose Yourself, um, the list goes on. Um, you're so active on social media, LinkedIn, I think you have over a million followers, um, Instagram, you have over 70,000, I mean, Twitter, I think it's over 200K, I mean... You are the man of the hour. Um, I could go on and on, but I would love to kind of get down to kind of what you're doing now and, um, you know, where it's all going for you, so to speak. Um, I guess my first question would be, like, since you were based in New York, and I believe you moved to 
Florida recently. Um, let's focus on New York just because you've sure. considerably amount of time there, right? Um, how do you feel the entrepreneur community, I guess, has evolved, um, digressed, or, or even accelerated over the past two to three years in New York? Well, you know, it's interesting. Location now almost doesn't mean anything because, right? you know, it, the, the, the lockdown forced people for three months, four months to completely reinvigorate their business from indoors and in isolation. So the people who were able to make that transition made that transition. In some cases, you can't make that transition. So, uh, you know, if you had a business that required you to meet people and talk to people and, and meet people in person, then you couldn't make that transition. But even those businesses, many pivoted uh, to be able to handle the lockdown. But the, the reality is, I do think you can be a successful entrepreneur from anywhere at the moment. And it used to be a requirement for entrepreneurship, not, not necessarily a requirement, but a, a benefit to entrepreneurship is having a, many like-minded people around you that you can meet with and talk to and exchange ideas with. And, you know, it's an exchange of ideas that innovation really develops. Well, I think people figured out how to do that on their own without such, uh, you know, without being in, in person. You know, maybe you call up your friends and have Zoom meetings. Like I've joined various uh, networking groups that meet primarily on Zoom. So I, I think the, the reasons for being in New York City and, and San Francisco, some of this might apply as well, is there are many business opportunities there. There are many uh, opportunities to meet people. There are a lot of entrepreneurship, uh, uh, entrepreneurial companies there. There's also a lot of culture in New York City, like everything from Broadway to restaurants to comedy clubs to various subcultures to all age groups and, and so on. And there's also, you know, good food, restaurants and, and things like that. But all of that right now is on hold in New York City. So many of the yeah. people I know, may, maybe many of the people you know, have either temporarily or permanently left New York City. I, I survived in New York City. I, I stayed there the entire lockdown and it was just you know i have i have five kids uh it was it was sort of at the you know after two weeks of the protests and we started to see shootings in new york city go up uh, i mean just this past weekend uh, a one-year-old boy was shot and killed uh in new york city that that hadn't happened in decades i think or at least years and so we decided to at least temporarily uh, uh, rent a place in Florida. We still have a place in New York City. We're going back and forth, but we'll see what happens. And I know a lot of people in California and New York are considering making permanent moves. And I also have seen that, and this could be a good thing in the long run, but I've seen that uh, New York City rental prices and, and, how, and, and, and ownership, you know, buying prices have gone way, way down. Right, yeah. Yeah, and with and with good reason. If you can't go out and enjoy the bars or the restaurants, you know, what are you in New York for? Yeah, and also if you can't, I mean, I used to do all my podcasts in person. Now I do them all remote, and I actually enjoy that. Uh, I guess the the technology and the audio quality has gotten a lot better. I, I started doing all um, in person podcasts three or four years ago and the audio quality just wasn't there on the apps, but now on the apps, the audio quality is there and the video quality is there. So yeah, no, it's fantastic. You, I would, I, 
you know, describe you as kind of a mixed media entrepreneur, if you will. I think we both are. Um, you know, we, well, you certainly interview the cream of the creme, creme of the, you know, the, the top dogs, so to speak. Um, and you're great at, you know, syndicating all that content. Um, I guess if we, we talk about podcasting as a medium, which I'd love to get to because you know so much about it and you were obviously an early adopter in it, James, you've been doing it for some time now, but, um, you know, let's, let's get back to, I guess, basics, so to speak. We talk about, you know, television was created as like this one-way communication tool. It was linear. It was, you know, send out the message, um, serve to inform, you know, persuade, command, so to speak. Then we get to two-way communication, enter the internet. You know, it's all about feedback, receiver, sender, um, know the message that's being received and whatnot. Now we're like at the time of podcast, which podcast is really having extreme resurgence if you will or surgeons um i feel like everyone's got a podcast these days um which is exciting i love storytelling i think the more people doing it brilliant um but i'd love to get your feeling on like where you think podcast has come to um i guess where it's been where it's come to and where you think it's going um and then i'd love to talk about your techniques too yeah sure um i think uh it's very exciting right now that uh well well first off just you, you bring up the point. Everybody seems to be doing a podcast and that's, you know, sort of true, sort of uh, fine. Everyone's also writing a book, but only a few books will be best-selling Public. books. That's so, right. so all, all, you know, these things can happen in conjunction that you have, uh, a, you know, a large amount of people using a medium, but it doesn't mean that, the medium's dead. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do a podcast. There's a, there's many reasons to, to do a podcast. Uh, there are a lot of successful podcasts that have just started in the past year or two. Um, so I, I don't think that slows down the growth in podcasts at all. Uh, uh, I do think, though, you know, like with anything, it's good to be it's good to play around with the medium. So, uh, uh, you know. Right now, you and I are doing an example of an interview podcast where, you know, that's a very common podcast. I do an interview podcast. I'll interview, you know, people from all, you know, entrepreneurs, athletes, actors, writers, and so on. Uh, but there are other types of podcasts, too. There's storytelling podcasts. It could be a fiction story. There could be true crime podcasts. Like the original one was Serial, which was very successful. There could be... Um, podcasts that are like how-to podcasts, like, oh, how to build an app or how to uh, uh, persuade people or whatever. So there are many types of podcasts. And, uh, you know, I think you kind of, you know, do, do a podcast because it's about something you love rather than to make money. A podcast is very, very difficult to make money, but you can, of course, use it as an opportunity to talk to people you would like to talk to. You can use it as an opportunity for branding. Uh, uh, and there's, there's many reasons to do a podcast other than just make money. Very, again, very few podcasts are going to make money from the normal business models, which is, uh, uh, have ads, you know, you could have a private podcast, like you could have a, a private community that people have membership to like a networking community and you do a podcast among members of your community. So that would only have a few hundred uh, people listening, but it would be worth it because it's providing a service to your community. So, uh, you know, I also think there's, there's, 
you know, we also we're, we're we're in an environment now where yes, TV is has been important, is always important. Uh, you know, TV production costs are much larger than just about any other medium except movies. Like to do this podcast you're doing right now will cost you between a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars. Maybe even cheaper, maybe more expensive. It depends on how much you're doing. But uh, and obviously, a, a TV show, uh, even a mildly produced TV show, costs minimally a couple hundred thousand dollars. Uh, uh, you know, like an episode of the John Stewart, you know, the Daily Show with John Stewart, not counting John Stewart's salary, might still have cost like you know half a million dollars or more. So, right. so, uh, uh, but I would say. Content creation is extreme. A lot of people have been using this phrase, the new normal. Like after this pandemic is over, uh, so much has changed in terms of, you know, economic lockdown, um, you know, fears about virus, uh, concerns about, you know, elections and, and protests and, and so on, that a lot of people are calling this what we're going to enter into a new normal. I don't call it that. I call it the great reset. There's not going to be a new normal. We're not going back to anything like normal at all. And we might as well embrace that and embrace how we could flourish in this new reset of the world. And content creation is part of that. So whether you're writing a book, a newsletter, a blog, creating a course, doing a podcast, uh, doubling down on Instagram videos, TikTok, Facebook videos, YouTube videos, content creation and storytelling as a, uh, uh, a, a kind of umbrella of that is going to be an important skill to learn. Uh, so yeah. I don't know if that quite answers your question, but, you know, podcasts are, are a valuable part of, of, you know, what could be a way to double down on content creation. Absolutely. It's, and you do it so incredibly well. I mean, obviously you've got a huge following and listeners. Um, I, what I really love about the way you, you're formatting, and I'm obviously a bit more, um, you know, I guess traditional with like a better word, but I love the way you do it. You, you kind of do like a stream of thought. You also do like an Instagram live video, which then like doubles down as like your podcast. And then you have like open for questions and you ask people to text you and you have a lot of kind of actionable, I guess, um, things for your audience like you know you have call outs like you have your GoFundMe campaign you're doing at the moment and um yeah you have a lot of ways you can engage with your and create dialogue with your audience which I think is really interesting um and something you know I would love to do more of um how did you how did you kind of I guess flip the model so to speak because if you think podcast yeah it's like oh something I might listen to on the way to like go for a run or on my morning commute on the train or whatever it is um, whereas yours is much more interactive, I feel. Yeah. Uh, well, interactive in what way? T tell me what you mean. Cause there's various. I guess, I guess like, um, you create community, like you ask questions of your community, you set 30 day challenges. Yeah. Like you really set them, you set them to tasks, so to speak. Yeah. I think, um, I think there, there are several components. One is, uh, no matter what, you have to be a good storyteller. So, mm -hmm. so with every component of a podcast and maybe with the overall arc of the podcast, there's got to be some story that you're telling that your listeners buy into and that they're along for the ride. And this doesn't apply just for podcasts. This applies even for a tweet or even for a, an Instagram photo or whatever. And, you know, I think in this, in this 
reset, this great reset that we're going through, there's two types of skills that are important. There's hard skills, which is, um, uh, uh, you know, a hard skill might be computer programming, uh, but that's, you know, that could be very difficult depending on whether it's AI, robotics, whatever, or a hard skill could simply, how do you set up a Shopify store? How do you do, uh, you know, what are the technical details of doing Facebook marketing, Instagram marketing, uh, direct to consumer marketing and so on. So, so that's, those are hard skills. And then the other side is storytelling skills. So the ability to tell a story, the ability to negotiate, the ability to do sales, the ability to do marketing, the ability to be entertaining or educational. So nobody cares at all about degrees anymore. That I, I know that like kids still do. Kids are going to still apply for college next year. They're going to apply for Harvard and parents have to kind of go along with what the kids want. But that that period is ending because nobody is going to hire on the basis of degrees or credentials anymore. That that era is is it was already ending, but it's going to end a lot faster now. And, and just as a tangent, everything that was going to happen Part of this great reset is that everything is, is the key word is acceleration. Everything that was going to happen in 10 years is going to happen in one year. So if you were meant to get um, divorced in 10 years, you're going to get divorced within one year. If you were meant to um, shut down your business in 10 years, you're going to shut down your business within one year. And we're seeing this with retail stores like JCPenney probably would have survived another few years. It's already bankrupt. Neiman Marcus would have survived a few more years. It's bankrupt. Amazon would have grown to be this big in a few years. It's it's at all time highs right now. So acceleration is a key part of this great reset. But uh, uh, the same thing is going to happen with less interest in college and more, so less interest in credentials and more focused on on skills. So again, with a podcast or with an article or with a, a, a tweet or a set of tweets, you've got to think of. What, what is the story you're trying to tell? What is, and, and what are the different avenues people are going to respond to your story? So, so for instance, it's great. Uh, let, let's say I had a magic list for what I want my podcast to convey. I want it to be entertaining. First off, I want it to be educational. I want it to have actionable items. I want to be able to solve some curiosities that people have. I want to create some intrigue, maybe, you know, like you say, uh, you know, have a 30-day challenge and maybe announce like, oh, tomorrow I will announce a new 30-day challenge. So there's a little bit of intrigue. So when people listen to a podcast that I do, they know they're going to be entertained. They know they're going to learn something new. They might get some actionable advice. They might get some, I always try to provide what I call a cocktail party conversation. So even if they don't use the actionable advice, They'll know that, oh, did you know that, uh, you know, 15 million people died in the in this period? Or I don't know. I don't know why I use death as a way to entertain people. But um, there's all these, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's all these avenues. Like even when I do a blog post, I'll throw in interesting facts. I'll throw in actionable advice that they can't get anywhere else. I'll throw in my story of how I use this actionable advice myself to make my life better. I'll also throw in images because maybe people will like the article, but maybe people will like 
the images. So I want to give as many reasons, many as many ex excuses for someone to like and continue the article as possible. I'll throw in cliffhangers. Like I wanted, let's say I wanted to publish a book, but, and I had a good idea and I wrote the book and then 30 publishers rejected it and I felt depressed. What would I do next? It's a little bit of a cliffhanger. And, 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 you know, maybe the title of it is how I created a, a million book, uh, a, a million sales, best-selling book, even though everybody rejected it. Maybe that would be the title and it would start off with how everybody rejected it. So I have a little bit of a cliffhanger. What did I do next? And now I give actionable advice. Here's what you do when everyone rejects your book and, uh, uh, and so on. So I'm telling a story. I'm giving actionable advice. I have a cliffhanger. Maybe I make it a little bit funny. Like, you know, somebody even rejected it by sending me a letter saying, this is the worst book I've seen in 70 years and I'm only 40 years old. So, you know, just something that's a little, uh, you know, even mean to be entertaining and to be self-deprecating. And, and that's another thing too, is self-deprecation is very important. Not that you would want to do it gratuitously because people sense that but you have to be sincere about it, but vulnerability equals freedom. So if I say everything wrong with me, no one could accuse me of anything because I've already said it. Okay, go ahead. Accuse me of more stuff. I already said it. So <laughs> I like that. That's very, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Be the person to say it rather than on the receiving end. Um, you know, your point about like everything's accelerated, James, is really interesting because um, are you sitting in Florida right now in your pajamas? I, because I am. Would that exactly? Would that, would that not have been something you do in like, I know, 40 years, but it's happened within a year because of the pandemic. So um, <laughs> I, I loved how you were talking about how you like your own pajama line and that you've really embraced pajamas and you've been set a pajama challenge to those listening yes that's right a pajama challenge so um how are you are you in your pajamas right now and are you still in the mix of your I, I am i am in my pajamas and this is the 51st day in a row that i've worn nothing but pajamas 24 hours a day and i've been on airplanes four <laughs> times i've been in restaurants i've been outdoors i've been in the blm protest in new york city i've performed comedy there was an outdoor comedy show with safe social distancing so i've, I've been on podcasts uh, i've been on you know huge zoom conferences where i was a speaker and the thing is i kind of think all everything in life should be an experiment so for me i am doing a very serious experiment which is uh uh you know pajamas are the most, by definition, pajamas are the most comfortable clothes you can wear. I mean, they're so comfortable, you can fall asleep in them. Whereas, let's take the other extreme. If I'm wearing a suit, which is a very common piece of clothing for men, I cannot fall asleep in a suit. Like, they're very, you know, a suit jacket's very stiff. A tie might be uncomfortable. A belt might be uncomfortable. Uh, shoes might be, you know, hard leather shoes might be uncomfortable. So, uh, pajamas are the most comfortable clothes you could wear. And now that everything is moving towards a remote world, why should I wear anything but the most comfortable clothes in the world? Like in the beginning of this lockdown, everybody was giving advice like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm keeping my normal routine. So I stay active. I'm getting up in the morning. I'm making the bed. I'm, I'm 
putting my suit on and I'm quote unquote going to work in my living room. And that's just stupid because you're not going to work in your living room. You're going to your living room and you're going to try to do work. But why do you need to wear a suit? So my goal was, I had two goals. One is, can I just create a lifestyle that is as comfortable as possible for me? Life is already hard. This pandemic and lockdown made it a little more difficult in many ways, easier in some ways, but more difficult in some ways. So I need to treat myself well. I'm going to wear the most comfortable clothes all of the time. And I don't care. And it's also a little bit of an experiment in not caring what people think. So again, I've been on an airplane. Uh, I've been to parties at people's houses, uh, you know, with, with correct social distancing. I've been to restaurants with social distancing. Um, and I, yes, I, I wear clothes that are obviously pajamas. And, and so that's experiment number one. Experiment number two is, well, if this is real, like if I'm having no problem wearing the most comfortable clothes at all, and by the way, I like how pajamas look. They're often in either very dark colors or very light colors. Uh, they have different types of designs than traditional outerwear. Like I'm not wearing like a Nike logo on my pajama clothes, for instance. Like you, there's no reason to show off logos with pajamas because people only wear them at night. So you find that there's less logos. But I started thinking, what if I create some very simple designs that are that are more outer, I'll call it outerwear type designs, but on pajamas. So I started thinking about a clothing line. And so again, the, the first experiment worked, which is that I can wear pajamas outside. No one's going to, not only has nobody given me a problem, but people have complimented me on my clothing choices, both in person and through photos, because people didn't understand in photos that I was wearing pajamas. And they said, oh, nice outfit. You know, they never, it's an odd sort of outfit to see. The other thing, so 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 I started experimenting. Could this be a fashion line? So it, start, it forced me to learn different kinds of designs that are acceptable in fashions. And then it also forced me to um, look up, you know, the whole process from beginning to end, how pajamas are made, how pajamas are, uh, you know, how you can change the structure of pajamas, how you can um, put designs on pajamas, how you can ship them, and, and so on. So this experiment has led to also an experiment in learning. Then... I started thinking, well, what fabrics, how can I be innovative on fabrics? And by the way, I know nothing about fashion. So I started looking into, um, in, in, my, uh, my wife had mentioned to me that copper historically for thousands of years has been used for its antiviral properties. Uh, so for instance, similar with silver, silver, the reason we have silverware and the reason your cavities are made out of silver is because silver has antibacterial and antiviral properties. Like when you use silverware, it disinfects the food uh, that your fork picks up on the way to your mouth. People, Most people probably don't know that, but that's the reason for silverware. And if you Google, I'm going to do it right now. If you Google copper and antiviral, uh, there's, there's 2,700,000 results. And the first one is from Smithsonian Magazine, why copper is good at killing viruses. And the second one is copper is great at killing superbugs. So let me see. If I Google uh, copper and coronavirus, I've never done this. Let's just see. Um, uh, hold on. There's 133 million results. 
The first one is, can copper protect against the new coronavirus? And that's that was just a few days ago. Um, and here's the New York Times, the second result. Copper will not save you from coronavirus. But here's Smithsonian Magazine again. Um, here's the CDA statement on, on copper and coronavirus. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's, there's, there's millions of things. So everyone's concerned about safety right now. A friend of mine did a study of uh, what 200 million people are searching on. And safety is one of the most important new words that people are searching on. So imagine if I took copper infused fabrics and made pajamas out of them. So I didn't know if such a thing was possible. I Googled copper infused fabrics. It is possible. There's right now doctors are wearing copper infused masks, for instance. And the top, I didn't know this either. The One of the top Kickstarters, out of millions of Kickstarter projects on Kickstarter right now, one of the most popular Kickstarters is called um, the Hygienic Hand, and it's a brass doorknob. So if you don't know, doorknobs are made out of half tin, half copper. So right. clearly, people are thinking along these lines, both in terms of fabrics and, and other household devices. And there is there are companies that sell copper-infused fabrics. So now I'm thinking, what if I make copper-infused pajamas? Is this a legit fashion line? Totally giving away what's potentially a billion-dollar idea for free here, but it, it's the way I'm thinking. I love it. I love the way you think, and that that brings me. And I think you're on, you're definitely onto something there. So if you don't do it, someone else will that's listening to this. I'm sure. But that brings me to like your latest book, um, James, which is titled "Skip the Line." The 10,000 Experiments Rule and Other Surprising Advice for Reaching Your Goals. You're a big experimenter, if you will. Yes. Um, you love experimenting. Um, tell me, like, when did this become part of your, you know, I guess like a bit of a workflow or uh, practice? Uh, when did you start experimenting? Have you always been an experimenter or is it something you've just kind of started in the last, you know, six months in the pandemic or when did it come about? Well, let me ask you a question, January. When's the, obviously you've switched careers at a couple of points in your life. When is the last time you've switched careers or, or tell me a big time when you've switched careers? Oh yeah. Well, um, I used to work in corporate communications in New York. So it was very, um, it was on the creative side of corporate, but definitely very corporate. And I switched to, you know, full-time blogging, storytelling. Um, yeah, I'm working with entrepreneurs and starting Parlay Me. So that was about, my last switch was about, yeah, four years ago. Yeah, and so when you switch, uh, oftentimes people will, I'm sure when you switch from the corporate world to being a little more entrepreneurial, I'm sure people came up to you and said, maybe even your parents, maybe your friends, maybe your colleagues, maybe your bosses, um, maybe former mentors or professors, I'm sure a lot of people said, uh, January, I, you know, do you, don't you know that 90% of businesses fail? Like you better play it safe in the corporate world. This is you, this is a safe paycheck for you. Why take a chance? Did, did anybody like to say that to you? Yeah, there was a lot of like, what do you do? I didn't quite get it. <laughs> what do you do again? <laughs> now, you know, everyone knows what, um, you know, bloggers do. But back then, yeah, people were like, uh, are you crazy? Yeah. Yeah. And so I've switched careers many times in my life. Like I went from the software world. I was a software engineer. I went into the entertainment world. I worked at HBO. I left a great job at HBO to start a 
company. Um, and that was really scary. And then I went into completely new business. I became a venture capitalist, then a hedge fund manager, then a writer about finance. And then I wrote books and then, you know, I, I became a, a more uh, personal investor. So I've been, I've been invested in everything from tech companies to law enforcement related companies to oil companies. I'm invested in all, you know, across the board. And then uh, of course, blogging, podcasting, you know, self-help, but then there was some, um, every single time, every single time, a hundred percent of the time, someone always said to me, you can't do this. You cannot do this. So I remember one time I was at HBO. I was an employee there. I worked in the IT department, which meant I was the lowest of the low in a, at an entertainment company. Like nobody, everybody just spat on me basically. And one time <laughs> I just, I had an idea. I had a, I had what I thought was a great idea. And I walked, I started walking over to the CEO of HBO's office and this woman stops me along the way and she's like, oh, where are you? She's a friend of mine. She says, oh, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Jeff Bukas's office, the CEO. And she said, you can't, you can't do that. Where, what the heck? You can't, you got to just go to your boss. And, and keep in mind, the CEO of HBO at that time, and this is like for any large corporation, if you're at the bottom, the CEO was my boss's, 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 boss. So I was skipping over all of those and just going to the CEO's office. And, and she was quite right in saying, I can't do that because she can't do that. Like she couldn't do that. And so, of course, she was going to give me the advice that she gave herself. I don't blame her. But uh, I went anyway. And he, he, he I, looked, I walked past the secretary who, who was like, where are you going? And I said, oh, it's OK. Don't worry about it which she just didn't know what to say to that. And I kept walking and I go into Jeff's office and he looks up from his desk and he's like, who are you? And I explained that I was helping set up HBO's website. And I pitched him this idea, which is that HBO made their brand on creating original edgy TV shows. How, now there's this brand new medium called the World Wide web. This is in the nineties. And why don't I make, uh, an original t web show for HBO. And he just kind of waved his hand and he's like, sure, do whatever you want. I don't care. And so I went back to my boss and I said, Jeff told me to do this. And that's my new job now. And he's like, really? And I said, yeah. And, and by the way, I told him I worked for you. He's, you have full credit because you always want to give everybody around you full credit. And, yes. uh, uh, so I started making original web shows for HBO. Um, I did uh, a, an online show, which actually they later then gave me money to shoot as a pilot for TV. But I did a show called 3 a.m. on HBO.com, which was about uh, what are people up to at three in the morning in New York City. So this was an experiment to do a web show. It was basically, this is 1996. It was kind of the first podcast. It was me outdoors at three in the morning on, let's say, a Tuesday night in New York City interviewing pimps, drug dealers, homeless people, prostitutes, all of their customers, you know, going to jail. I did everything for, for, I did this for two and a half years. I just, I did everything you could possibly do at three in the morning in New York. And, um, 
And then other companies started contacting me and saying, hey, can you do this for us too? So on the side, I created a company, my first company to create these entertaining websites for entertainment companies. And it was a lot of fun and it was starting to make me more money than I ever thought possible. And, uh, you know, that was an example experiment, uh, which turned, you know, I had never done a show before. It turned into something very real and valuable to me. More recently, I'd say in the past six years, I just, I wanted to do stand-up comedy and everybody said, you can't, you can't do it. It's okay if you try it, but don't expect that you're going to really be serious at it. And people were still saying that to me. Heck, people are still saying that to me. But meanwhile, six years later, I've toured all over the world. I've, you know, right before the pandemic, I did five different cities in the Netherlands. I've toured all over the U.S. I, I perform everywhere. Um, and it was, and, and it was more than just, just an experiment for me. It became like a lifestyle for me. And, and even within comedy, I would experiment. And like, if I wanted to get better at a certain type of standup, I would uh, do experiments with it. And I kept grappling with this. Like I kept obsessing over what's called the 10,000 hour rule, which is, oh, you have to get to do 10,000 hours to get good at something. And I didn't have 10,000 hours. I didn't want 10,000 hours is like 10 years. I didn't want to spend 10 years trying to get good at something. I didn't have that kind of time. And so right. uh, I was talking to Julia Cameron, who came on my podcast. Uh, she's the author of The Artist's Way. Uh, and she's very, she's a, a bit older and she's helped, you know, thousands or millions. The, the book, The Artist's Way, I've sold millions of copies and it's, a, it's her technique for creativity. And I said, I'm grappling with this 10,000 hour rule. And I had all these theories about how to skip the 10,000 hour rule. And she just kept shaking her head. And she's like, she literally said to me, like, like how a grandma would, she said, oh, you poor, poor deal, dear, you're, you're in prison from this 10,000 hour rule. And it like woke me up. And I realized, you know, whenever I've gotten good at something, whether it's investing or software or uh, podcasting or even comedy, it was from doing these experiments. And, and so I started thinking about it. An experiment has these characteristics. There's very little downside uh, in time or money. There's enormous potential upside. Like Thomas Edison, when he was experimenting to make the light bulb, he, you know, he, they, they say he failed 9,999 times, his first 9,999 experiments on it. And the 10,000th experiment he created a light bulb, which created, you know, General Electric, kind of all these, you know, trillions of dollars worth of companies. And um, so he had enormous upside. And there's really no downside. Like the worst case scenario in a failed experiment is you learn something. So somebody once asked him, Thomas Edison, how did you, how did you feel failing 9,999 times in a row? And he said, uh, no, correction, I didn't fail. I I, I learned 9,999 different ways a light bulb wouldn't work. And that's how you view an experiment. And so, so I realized, oh, doing experiments lets me inc skip incredible amounts of hours in this 10,000 hour rule model. Like if I had, you know, comedians on my podcast, that those were all experiments. Like I would just ask them, questions that I was facing in comedy. And here would be professionals, you know, who were answering my questions. Normally you wouldn't be able to do that. 
I would I would go on a subway and try to do stand-up comedy on a subway because it's a very angry audience. And that was an experiment for me that allowed me to skip lots of hours. Or I would go on stage with weird kinds of jokes that I normally wouldn't do and see if they hit or not. By the way, most of the time they would bomb miserably, but that's okay. You learn something as long as you can handle it psychologically. And even that is part of the experiment is being able to handle failure. Uh, like I used to... I used to fail quite a bit and be miserable and depressed about it. Like one, you know, many times I would make money in a business. I would lose all my money and I would be depressed, even suicidal. I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. And I realized it was, it was the process of coming up with ideas and then experimenting on them. That would always each time get me out of bed, get me trying things, get me excited again. You know, ideas are good, but then action gets you excited. You know, so for instance, let's say I was depressed about this lockdown. And let's say I did this little mini experiment. Oh, I'm going to wear pajamas 50 days in a row. That's one interesting thing. But now let's say I'm going to experiment and I'm going to hire a factory to for, for a couple of dollars, send me over a pair of pajamas with a logo on it. That might be another experiment with very little downside. It might cost me a few dollars, but but not that much, not that much money. And that might be another experiment. And I would say every day now I'm doing four or five experiments a day. I mean, already today, I've probably, I've done at least one major experiment today, which is I made an offer to buy. I've never, I, I, I have, I, I think if you buy a successful profitable business, you have much greater chances of success than starting a business from scratch. So I made an offer for to the owner of an, a mobile game that I like, uh, to, and I know the game is profitable. I, I saw the financials, so I made an offer for basically, you know, two times what they make per year in earnings. I made an offer to buy the app, so that's an experiment. I've never done that before, and uh, and then I offered to, to to pay it with almost no money down. So. I, I actually offered higher than what this person was asking for, but that I pay it over the time. So minimal amount of money. So that's an experiment to see if this person accepts the offer. And uh, so, so every day I'm experimenting with, with different ideas and it's, and it's really helped me to skip the line very quickly. So in comedy, you imagine someone performing all over the world after they've been doing it for 20 years I did it after just a few years. Uh, I started a hedge fund two years before I had a hedge fund with about $100 million in it. I remember talking to someone saying I wanted to start a hedge fund. And he looked at me skeptically and he said, you know, maybe you should get an MBA or maybe you should work at a bank or work for a hedge fund, get some experience. Maybe you shouldn't lose all your money investing first before you start a hedge fund. And right. I, I instead, I experimented very um, rapidly on different investment ideas. I found an investment idea that worked and I started my fund back in 2003. And so, so experiments are a great way to skip the line, to, to switch careers at any age you want. I'm, I'm 52 years old and I'm considering starting a fashion line. I'm 52 years old and I'm buying, I'm getting in the mobile app game business. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of experiments I have going on right now uh, with with 
book writing, with comedy, with entrepreneurship, with parenting, all, all sorts of ideas. And, right. and, and that's how you get, that's how you get better very fast because of an experiment works. I, I, I learned an enormous, enormous amount. I skipped thousands of hours. I love it. That is Sorry, so that was such a long answer, but that's, it's so important. I love it. it is super important and it's so great to under, like experiment. Exactly. And don't be afraid of failure. It's so important. I mean, I, a question for you, and I guess it's just kind of a train of thought while you're thinking like how much, right? Like the right time, the right place. Like, okay. Um, I know, like, look at Facebook, for example. You've had the concept of Facebook, you know, a bunch of Ivy League students create a networking site predominantly for themselves. Um, who would have predicted that growth, right? Like, there were so many outside factors that influenced its success. Like, for me, like, personally speaking, um, you know, I discovered Facebook back in, what, 2005, and I was living in Australia and I only heard about it because there was a big shooting. Unfortunately, you know, the combine shooting and whatnot was like all across the press, all this Facebook, um, you know, all, all, all the kids are writing on Facebook about what happened and everyone's like, oh, what's Facebook? What's Facebook? You know, how do you kind of, okay, so you have an experiment, but then like how do you, you know, take it through, like give it that chance for like the right time, the right place, like the things coming into intersection at the right time like how do you, you you can't predict that right like that's just pure luck or, or what do you think right but, but the key is so you know again i mentioned earlier that um you know particularly like the, this first business i started making websites for other mostly entertainment companies i sold that business i made tens of millions of dollars and then within two years uh i lost every Dime. I remember there was one, I, I bought this huge house. I had two children. I remember a few years later, um, look, I was, I was so depressed, but I, and I was afraid to look at my bank account. I remember in my ATM machine, I didn't want to see what my balance was. I was terrified. I had like PTSD about seeing what my balance was. And I checked my balance by accident. And it told me I had $143 left. That was like, that particular account was down from 15 million to $143. And I had blown it all and I was losing my house, losing my family. I was so depressed. I was suicidal. I like literally, I still had a life insurance policy that I had gotten from uh, while I still had money. And so I thought my kids were still babies. They won't remember me. I'll be able to leave them. They'll remember the life insurance, but they won't remember me. So I was trying to figure out how can I, uh, and this sounds very morbid, so I, I apologize, but I, I was trying to figure out how could I kill myself without anyone knowing that I had committed suicide because I was afraid the insurance wouldn't pay, uh, which was correct. And um, uh, so, so, but I, I did not go through with it. Instead, I, I bought myself, I don't know why I did this. I, I love the look and the form factor of waiter's pads. Like they're just, they fit in your pocket. They have these nice, they're very small. I like things that are kind of like miniaturized. You can't really write a whole essay on them. You have to write just a bullet pointed list. So I started writing 10 ideas a day down and it would, I found in just a few weeks, like I was literally, it felt like I was more creative and I realized, oh, the, the creativity muscle is a muscle like any other. And so I was writing 10 ideas a day 
down in this waiter's pad and I just kept doing it. And I will tell you, I've gone broke several times since. Every time I've gone broke is when I've stopped writing ideas down. Every time I've made it back, and it would take a long time, but I would start writing ideas again and I'd start being creative. And every now and then I would have one maybe good idea. Most of the ideas are bad ideas. I would have one maybe good idea. And uh, I, 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 in order to implement an idea, I didn't have any money. I would just start these small, tiny experiments to, to validate an idea. Um, an example might be when I wrote a book, I wrote a book titled Choose Yourself, and it was my best-selling book ever out of 25 books that I've written. And I did a little experiment. I wasn't sure what the title should be. My, my original idea for a title was called the Choose Yourself Era, E-R-A, uh, like a time period where it was time to choose yourself. But I realized I had trouble saying it. It always sounded like the choose yourself error, like it would be an error to choose yourself. And so I, uh, I had a bunch of friends come up with title ideas and I came up with some title ideas. I made Facebook ads for each and I just made put a $10 or $20 budget behind each Facebook ad with a different title on each ad. And I was able to measure using Facebook analytics, which, which titles people were clicking on. And by far, everybody clicked on choose yourself versus uh, I think some of the other titles were pick yourself or the choose yourself error or whatever. There was, there was like 10 titles I was testing. And so that's how I picked the title was doing a little experiment. And I, I, I realized again that, um, you have to do not only big experiments, but you have to break it down into tinier experiments. So for instance, it would be a bad idea for me to just experiment immediately. Oh, let's make, you know, a thousand pairs of copper infused pajamas and then see if I could sell them. Horrible experiment. That would be a horrible experiment. It's like what I said before, the characteristics of a good experiment is extremely little downside in terms of time and money. And no matter how much money you have, no matter how much time you have, you still want to do as many experiments as possible. So you must reduce time and money. So uh, like, like picking a title for Choose Yourself took me, you know, about $100. And it took a week of time, but not a week of my personal time. It took almost no time at all for me. I, had, I, I basically just made the ads in 10 minutes. And a week later, I checked it. But so, so the key is, you know, even with comedy, it's not like, oh, let's take, you know, let's go up on front of Madison Square Garden and do comedy for the first time. And that's an experiment. No, I'll go, uh, like I said, do comedy on a subway or I'll write some material, tell some jokes for, at a, at a, at a dinner and see if people laugh you'll, or you'll scale it, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm doing, you know, buying a, a mobile game, is I, I picked a game that was relatively cheap, but one that I enjoyed. And this is a tiny experiment. Either this game kind of keeps on chugging and pays for itself ultimately, or if it works and I'm able to scale it a little bit, I might buy more games and build a whole mobile gaming company. And who knows? You know, one experiment could lead to others, could lead to others. But the, the key with any skill and I, I discussed this also in, in the book. The key with any skill is that 
the skill is not really what you think. Like there's no skill called entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is a meta skill and it's divided into a bunch of micro skills like negotiation, sales, marketing, execution, creativity, management, leadership, uh, raising money, selling a company. So those are all mutually exclusive skills. Like selling a company has very little to do with execution. So, you know, and it has very little to do with creativity. There's, there's small overlaps, but not a lot of overlap. So you have to get good at all these micro skills. Creativity might have a bunch of micro skills. So, and then you get good at these micro skills by experimenting. So maybe I want to get better at writing. So writing again is not just one skill. There's many skills. There's storytelling. There's use of language. There's understanding cliffhangers. There's understanding character development, world building, even in nonfiction or fiction, all these, but then there, those are other skills, nonfiction, fiction. Uh, there's the, the, the blog form, there's the novel form, there's the book form. Uh, so, so, you know, there's, there's your use of language. Like, are you using language like a literary writer? Are you using language like a genre writer? Nothing wrong with either one, but you have to, those are different skills. And so, uh, you can experiment. And I used to experiment by, I would write a Facebook, this is like in 2010, I would write a Facebook post and I would see how much engagement there was on the Facebook post. If there was a lot of engagement, then maybe I would send it to uh, other websites to publish, or maybe I would rewrite it and include the, the post. I would rewrite and expand and include the post as a chapter in a book, or maybe I'd write a post and there would be so much engagement I would say to myself, oh, this seems like it could be a book by itself. And I would expand it into a book. And so, um, you know, I if you just write a book from scratch, maybe that's a bad book. You don't know unless you experiment. Yeah. And so, but by the time the book would come out, I would know that this is going to be a successful book because maybe each chapter in some form or other, whether it was a Facebook book post or a tweet or a LinkedIn post, I knew that these were the posts over years that got the most engagement so that if I rewrote them, they'd st they still had themes and ideas that would resonate with people. And so those experiments could come together uh, as a successful book. Wow. You, you know, James, you have, you have a very curious mind. Like you are innately, like you're very hungry for knowledge and um, like a thirst, if you will, like, not everyone has this, right? You're obviously blessed with this. Something I did want to kind of touch upon, um, and there's so much you can touch upon because you're such an extraordinary, as Forbes said, most interesting man in the world. But I, I, I do want to touch upon something. You interview a ton of, well, I won't say a ton, but there's not, not a ton in the world, but you interview a bunch of billionaires um, and you study billionaires and a lot of, you know, the work you do is around, you know, billionaire mindset and whatnot. Um how much, I guess, um, something really interesting, because obviously I've been listening to your podcast and following you for some time, something quite interesting I want to talk to you about is like this notion of complacency, right? So you've got billionaires that are highly driven um, and then, you know, you've got complacency, which is, you know, coming across in all kinds of forms at the moment as we enter, you know, um, this post-pandemic, but we're not post it yet. We're still in the midst of it. Um, but I'm really interested in like complacency in the way of like what, motivates an individual to experiment to expand to become a billionaire like something you mentioned once 
or, or finding you found others that you'll find that most billionaires children are very rarely an entrepreneur themselves you know um is it like is it that level of complacency like what makes an entrepreneur like like you and I you know what is that you know well I think I think I think a lot of things and that's a really good question because just like entrepreneurship is a meta skill like it's a collection of micro skills you know what are the personal attributes of someone who's going to be a successful entrepreneur there's it's not really like someone is born with all these talents and skills. They kind of have to have um, something driving them. Yeah. So let's let's just figure this out together. Like obviously curiosity is important. So for instance, um, we're recording this right now on Zencaster. Now Zencaster at the moment only records audio, but a lot of podcasts, are you know podcasts i used to do all my podcasts in person and you you recorded me in in person in 2016 and that was a video that that's been highly watched and uh maybe i want to have video in a podcast so that's now i have now i have a problem so it's curiosity and a, and a problem well okay zoom you decided to use zencaster but zoom uh allows you to record video uh, so let me ask you a question. Why didn't why didn't you want to record this in, on Zoom? Um, I'm a creature of habit. <laughs> I'm also a creature of not habit. I'm I like experimenting. Don't get me wrong, but there's so many platforms in the world right now. Like when Zoom came in, like I feel archaic if I say to someone, "Oh, what about Skype?" People are like Skype. Like what is that? Like Zoom. So I feel like yes, there's new platforms that offer new in a you know innovations and ways of doing things but i just get a bit fatigued by different platforms so if sure something's good it works it does the job i'm in <laughs> don't, don't need about 10 of them but i get it like zoom no no but 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 okay that you yeah and by the way zoom was not made for podcasts zoom was really made for remote meetings some podcasters do record on zoom because then right right now my guess is you're focused on the audio uh, downloads of your podcast, which is, you know, all the podcasting platforms like, you know, Apple's podcast app, Google, you know, Stitcher, uh, all these things are audio only. So you're, you're, you're very focused on right. maximizing the, the analytics that really drive revenues for a podcast, which is the audio downloads. Mm -hmm. And some podcasters like Joe Rogan, for instance, he, he does audio and video but the video side is not as important for you. And for me too, like I focus mostly, my audio, my video doesn't come, it's like one-tenth of one percent of my audio downloads. And and Zencaster, by the way, records on both sides of the, like Zencaster, you're, you, you're the one who hit the record button, but Zencaster is recording locally on my computer and locally on your computer. And then at the end of this podcast, it stitches them together automatically. Right. And so that's a, that's because Zencaster solved a problem that Zoom didn't solve. Zoom doesn't record on both sides. So if somebody loses or has a bad internet connection, uh, the, the audio quality is not as good. And one thing we know in the podcasting world is that audio is the most important thing, much more important. Audio, having high quality audio is much more important than having high quality video because if you can't listen, there's no podcast. 
So, so Zencaster is better than Zoom for audio only. Uh, so, but then I asked myself, well, why doesn't Zencaster make video? And same thing with another podcast. There's, there's basically three podcasting platforms, as far as I know. Uh, Zencaster, maybe CleanFeed, uh, Squadcast, and um, Riverside's a new one. And Anchor's so, Anchor's another one too. They do a bunch. And, and Anchor, yes. And um, none of them do video. And Zencaster has announced video in beta. Uh, uh, there might be uh, Riverside has announced and just released video. But there's a there's, so so first there's curiosity, which is why not have the why don't have these platforms done video when you see so a lot of the fastest rising podcasts also have video components and the second question is well is there difficulties like what's the what's the deal zoom does video why don't these platforms do video and so i've been experimenting a little bit and you know it, it depending on what your upload speed is video of course gets in the way of you and me talking in real time and not, you know, the vi the video recording not getting in the way of the 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 audio because there's only so much bandwidth for uploads, and uh, and then it's complicated to kind of stitch all the videos together. It's more complicated than stitching all the audios together. So there's a lot more technical issues. And it's a different and medium. It's a different medium. I mean, podcast to me is podcast is something. It's like a telephone conversation you're kind of you're listening in on or is this kind of you know passive way of kind of getting to know someone I feel if you if you go like the video podcast version which is great it's more interactive and it's for a different audience you kind of feel like you have to engage the get the full experience by watching it and listening whereas the podcast for me is something you can pick up you know, go down to the shops, go on the way to the gym, whatever it is, listen to, um, dive into and feel like you're getting the full story. Whereas. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the way people consume podcasts historically is on the commute to work or in the gym, but, but both of those things are gone now. So, right. you know, more, more people are looking into video. Then you see the rise of like people like Joe Rogan and, and, and other video. He doesn't have a video podcast. He's an audio podcast, but now his video is so successful that that's a big part of his revenues obviously but so so then i i took a look at riverside which has released the first podcasting platform where videos recorded on both sides and and there are problems like it doesn't it doesn't fully work you know presumably they'll have more versions of it but i think you know just back to the original question curiosity is key like obviously video conferencing is a huge huge market zoom has gotten hundreds of millions of more users during this pandemic and it's not going away everybody's going to be working remote zoom's market cap as a stock is worth it's worth over 70 billion dollars uh so there's there's value in this space po there's two million podcasts so if you create podcasting software that's better than zoom you'll you'll probably make money like again zencaster has announced a beta version with video we'll see if it works i've not tried it and so curiosity uh, is part of it. Like, what would it be like? To, why isn't there podcasting software with video? But, and then, yeah. um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Can I ask you one thing? Does, does curiosity kill the cat though? Like, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, you know, like. Exactly. Exactly. So that's why experiments should cost very little in terms of time. If you spent a year of your life doing nothing but focusing on, well, how can I make a video 
podcasting platform, you might just waste a year of your life. So yes, that's where curiosity kills the cat. Right. Um, but if you just ask the question, like you and I are just talking, we're just asking the question. And then I can look at Riverside, which does have video, or I could look at Zoom, which has video, and I can say, well, what are the problems here? So I could, I could answer all these questions in less than a day's worth of time. And then, and then um, experimenting might be, uh, or, or, or taking action might be, okay, well, how would I go about making, you know, how would I solve some of these problems that exist with video and podcasting? And then maybe I can go one step further as I could hire a programmer and, well, is this a valid experiment or is it too much money? Again, too much money ruins an experiment because you don't want to, if you, if an experiment's too much money, then it'll limit the number of times you can experiment right. and, and so on. But if, if all of these things can be solved through experiments, then the upside might be I create software where there's video recording on both sides, what's called progressive uploading, which Zencaster has, meaning the uploading is happening while we're speaking. And, um, you know, maybe I can solve some other problems along the way. Like I could maybe live stream onto YouTube or Instagram or whatever. So, you know, it, being curious and then having a sense of how to execute and you get that from um, writing down 10 ideas a day uh, lets you figure out, you know, everybody always says, oh, ideas are nothing. Execution is everything. They forget that execution is really hard. So you need to be creative in order to execute well. You need to be able to, I, I, I know some people who have a good idea and then they spend millions of dollars executing on that idea. And then they realize the business was no good. Yeah. So the time has passed. <laughs> the time has passed or the business is no good or, or one of their features that they made was incorrect. They need to back up and do another feature. And the key there is experiments help you figure out and be, and writing down 10 ideas a day, those two things together help you to become great at the skill, the entrepreneurial skill of execution. So, you know, having an ability. So, so, so yeah, the original question was, what are the qualities of an entrepreneur? Obviously being uh, curious. The other thing is um, being able to recognize and solve problems. So we just talked about a small problem, which is why aren't, why isn't there more video um, software for podcasters? And, and then there's the ability to, uh, be creative. Uh, and so I exercise that creative muscle by writing 10 ideas a day. There's an ability to experiment. So that means you take action and you get very comfortable with taking very small pieces of action that move you further to a goal or convince you that that's not a worthwhile goal. And, and you, and again, with very little downside. And then, uh, and then there's finally, when all of those things come together, you might be entre you, you might have a business. And so I think, you know, again, um, curiosity, problem solving, uh, uh, creativity, you know, ability to come up with ideas, uh, ability to uh, experiment, and then finally, um, ability to bring it all together with larger pieces of action to say, this is a company now, and I, I'm going to start applying, doing other experiments with sales, with marketing, whatever. Or maybe I start the marketing first. Maybe I experiment and I'll put up an ad on Facebook, hey, uh, download your free, uh, the, the first video podcasting software that works. Well, what if I hadn't implemented it yet? No problem. What if I don't have a website? No problem. I'm just really seeing if there's demand. Man. So if people, if people click on that ad, I'll bring the ad down before, you know, too many people get excited. 
uh, or, you know, a, let's say a 3% click-through rate is enough on a Facebook ad to say, hey, this is a home run idea. And, and so maybe I've experimented on validating the idea before I even figure out how to solve it. So that's part of being good at execution as well. So billionaires or millionaires or entrepreneurs are kind of, they kind of build up skill sets at all these things. Another skill that they build up is how to reduce risk as much as possible. So billionaires, this is going to be surprising, but billionaires are extremely, extremely risk averse and entrepreneurs are risk averse. I did not leave my full-time job at HBO until 18 months after I did my first website for another company on the side. I had 10 employees and I was even renting an office on the other side of town before, before I quit my job, my full-time job at HBO. I was making 40,000 a year in New York City in the 90s at, at, at my full-time job at HBO. I just didn't want to give that up even though I was making more on my side business. And finally, when I felt my business had enough contracts, it would stay in business for at least two years. Then I quit my job at HBO and I was scared to death. So I'll give you an example. Damon John, who he's on Shark Tank. He, he, he's the founder of the company, the clothing company FUBU, which has done over $6 billion in clothing sales. He, he used to stand on the corner uh, making, he would sell hats with like rappers logos on them. That was his thing. He, he, he did what I call idea sex. He combined hip hop culture with hats and he knew how to sew from his mom had taught him when he was a kid. So he was sewing these hats, putting hip hop logos on them and just selling them on a street corner to people who passed by. And then he went to a clothing conference and I think it was Macy's came up to him and said, Hey, we'll buy a hundred thousand dollars of those hats. Can you do it? And so then he did what I call um, the ready fire aim technique that billionaires are good at. He said, yes. So he, he was ready. He knew how to make a hat. He fired. He said yes, but he hadn't yet aimed. He had no idea how he was going to make $100,000 worth of hats. He was a waiter at Red Lobster. He did not have the ability to make $100,000 worth of hats. So, so he was a waiter at Red Lobster, and in his free time, he would make one or two hats and sell them on the corner. So, But what he did was he knew that Macy's was going to give him $100,000 if he made the hats. So he went to his mom. He said to his mom, Mom, can I mortgage your house for one week? And she's like, what? And he said, yeah, I want to mortgage your house completely and, and trust me on this. So he mortgaged his mom's house and then he hired a bunch of seamstresses. He made all the hats that were necessary. Macy's paid him the $100,000. He, he paid down the mortgage and, and got the house back uh, under, you know, mortgage free. And he made a small profit. I don't know what his profit was, but he made a small profit. And he, so you would think, oh my gosh, he took this huge risk. He mortgaged his mom's house. No, he already had the contract to, with Macy's to sell him the hats. He knew how to make the hats. So he took no risk. And by the way, he didn't even quit his job at Red Lobster for another two or three years. So that ready, fire, aim approach and, and that approach of being risk averse is very important as well. When I first made money, I was not risk averse. I thought I was, but I wasn't. And that's how I ended up losing all the money four times in a row. It wasn't for another 13 years, maybe, that I finally started being more risk averse. 
And it was very painful during that time. But all these things together kind of make up the qualities of a billionaire. So curiosity, uh, an ability to solve problems, uh, ability to have lots of ideas, both good and bad. You have to come up with 99% bad ideas, 1% good ideas is a, is a decent ratio. Um, ability to experiment, and that teaches you how to execute. Ability to do ready, fire, aim, and ability to be completely risk averse. Richard Branson's another great example. Here's a 27-year-old guy at the time who wanted to start a major airline. How, how that people would say to him, you can't do that. How you're a 27-year-old music magazine publisher. You don't know anything about airlines. How, what are you going to do? Buy for $150 million an airplane? Uh, where are you going to get a landing strip? So he called up Boeing and he said to Boeing, I would like to borrow a 747. And Boeing is like, are you out of your mind? Who the hell are you? You're a 27-year-old magazine publisher. And he said, listen, Boeing, British Airways is a monopoly in England. You have no pricing pressure when, when you sell to British Airways. You're going to lose them as a customer unless there's a competitive airline. And so he said, how about I borrow a plane for a year and I will give it back to you in a year. And at the same time, he went to Heathrow and he said, listen, I got this plane from Boeing. I don't know if he had it or not yet, but he said, I got this plane from Boeing and you have no pricing pressure either. British Airways has a monopoly. Will you, uh, will you give me a landing strip? And they're like, all right. And JFK said, all right. And Boeing said, all right. So he didn't take any risk yet. He had a plane and he had two landing strips. He started an airline at 27 years old, and everybody told him, you can't do this. But on the other side of can't is success, and that's what he did. Wow, that's, that's extraordinary stuff. I mean, yeah, it's it's look, it's not for everyone. Does, I, I loved your also story about how he got the plane to Puerto Rico. We won't go into that, but <laughs> it's a amazing yeah. story. Um, how he did that too. So look, I I have two um, more questions for you because I'm, I'm conscious of your time as well. And I love, I love everything you're saying. Um, two more questions. There's two little gripes I have with you. No, I'm joking. But four years ago when I first interviewed you, gosh, it's been four years. Wow. Um, you, I asked you a question. Um, are you a poker player, roulette or blackjack? And you said you're a poker player, but you forgot to mention that you actually played poker, if I'm correct, every night for a year, even the night that your daughter was born. Is that correct? Yeah, I I was uh, said before all the TV. So all the TV and poker stuff started happening around 2002. Mm-hmm. Well before that, like in 1998, 1999, I played poker for 365 straight days. I think I was a little burnt out. I had just sold my business, my first business, and I really hated the whole process. I don't really enjoy being an entrepreneur, actually. I really uh, dislike a lot of aspects of it. And so I think I was burnt out and I didn't really have any friends and I love games. So poker was a way to kind of like hang out with a bunch of guys and gals who were making fun of each other all night and still exercise my games muscle. And so, yeah, I play poker every single night. The, the night my daughter was born, she was born during the day and Everybody was asleep. I remember I went in poker in New York City. There was all these underground clubs. I went to my favorite club, the, the Mayfair it was called. 
and uh, it's, been, it's since been closed down. And they wouldn't let me in. They said, you go back to your family because they knew I had had a kid that night. And uh, I said, no, 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 they're all on drugs. They're all asleep. So they let me in. Um, but yeah, I play, I, I still play poker uh, quite a bit. Poker, poker is, I always say poker is a chance game. For uh, Poker is a, a, poker is a skill game pretending to be a chance game. Right. It's to totally, the, the, the skilled players will always be in the long run, the, the unskilled players. Blackjack and roulette are totally chance games. So luck doesn't play such a part in it. Okay, interesting, interesting. I mean, luck, luck plays a part in any one individual hand, just like luck plays a part in backgammon. But, I mean, if you were going to play the world champion of backgammon, let's say a match to 100, I will bet, I will mortgage everything, I will borrow as much as I can, I will bet on the world champion backgammon player even though every dice roll is 100% chance. Sure, sure, absolutely. I love it. Um, and can I ask you personally, did you, um, and you can choose to answer or not, obviously, um, did you have a gambling problem? Um, have you since dealt with it? And you say you still, you know, um, you know, play poker. Do you have like a, a handle on how much you play now or what's your situation with it? Well, I don't consider poker gambling because, again, I do think it's a skill game. Just like I don't consider backgammon gambling. I mean, you can gamble on a backgammon game and you could gamble on poker, but the game itself is a skill game. And so the question is, did I gamble too much on poker? Uh, uh, the answer is no, I did not gamble too much on poker. I never, I really just like poker for the, the skill aspect. And sometimes the more money you play, the more you're able to test the skill because fear is a little bit part of the skill and managing the psychology of, of losing. But I would only, I would only pet play, uh, you know, to my comfort level. It was more with it. It was more with stock investing that I had a gambling problem because uh, stock market investing also is gambling. And uh, uh, and poker now I play in mostly in tournaments. So the last tournament I played actually. Played for charity, uh, and there was about 200 players. There were two world poker champions in there, and I came in second in the whole tournament, so I still have a little bit of my skills. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, but, and again, uh, if I had played roulette or blackjack, those are totally gambling games. There is no excuse to play those games, uh, so I would not play those. Now, blackjack, that you could say if you're counting cards, it becomes skill, but lost, you know, big casinos and uh, have avoided that problem. Got it. Got it. So my last question for you, uh, my second, my last gripe, I'm just joking. I don't have any gripes with you, James. You're brilliant. Um, <laughs> but uh, when I did interview you, I asked you um, one question being like, is there anyone that inspires, inspires you like an entrepreneur? Um, and you said to me at the time, everyone inspires you, which I think was a brilliant answer um, because it's true. Everyone, it doesn't mean if you build a spaceship, they're necessarily more inspiring than the person that created, I know, a paperclip next to you. But now fast forward four years, you interview extraordinary billionaires, uh, you know, celebrities, actors, you name it. Is there someone, I know this is a hard thing because I know if someone asked me this, I'd be like, oh, but this person for this reason and whatnot. But is there one uh, specific person that stands out to you that you got off, I don't know, you got off the podcast or whatever it was and you were like, wow, that, that wow, blew me away. You know, is there anyone that stood out to you? Uh, you know, again, I have the same answer. Like I think it's a real benefit to be able to be curious 
about everyone, everyone you can learn from. So like I've had so many great and amazing podcast guests that I'm grateful for. Like, um, you know, when I wanted to learn about writing, you know, how to be a better writer, uh, Chuck, Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote Fight Club and Tim O'Brien, who wrote The Things They Carried and Ken Follett, who's written a bunch of thrillers. They've all come on my podcast and they inspire me. When I want to learn about comedy, you know, so many comedians have come on my podcast. They inspire me. You know, politicians, people who you know are trying to make up policies that will help the world. They inspire me in many cases, uh, particularly the ones that I've had on my podcast. I, I figure I feel I have to qualify that. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's been so many people who have inspired me. I can't I can't just give one. Fair enough. And uh, you know, I. I I really, I really just love learning about new things and that keep that keeps me going. And I don't say that like in a trite way, like it's not just learning. It's like learning things that I'm, that I'm interested in and that I'm going to act on. Like for instance, I have no interest in playing golf. So if you told me, um, Hey, spend three weeks at my golf camp so you can learn how to play better golf. I'll have zero interest and you won't inspire me. But you know, if you tell me one interesting little factoid about golf, that, that might be interesting. Um, but, you know, lots of people in, inspire me. Yeah, good. Well, good. Well, I hope anyone, I'm sure um, people listening to this have felt inspired. I know I have. And for those listening that want to know more about you, James, what's the best avenue? Like, obviously, your podcast, they can find it on Spotify, Apple, all those good places. Is there anywhere else they should go and get as much content as possible from you? Uh, I don't know. Like, yeah, uh, my podcast is good. Or you could usually find me on Twitter at jaltucher, J-A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R or Instagram at Altucher, A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R, or, you know, my podcast is The James Altucher Show. Cool. But, or you can just listen to this podcast. I think I described everything about my life in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a feeling there's even more we didn't even go into, but I love it. Yeah, you're such a fascinating, um, I, I want to say character. You're almost a character. You're so, you have so many um, layers to yourself. And I just thank you for sharing them today with our listeners. It's re really beneficial for everyone and all those budding entrepreneurs and everything. And I really do hope you're staying safe in Florida um, and that, you know, all, all, you know, one last question is like, how do you think, you know, you did mention once, um, I think that, you know, society in general, uh, has kind of gone better, so to speak, you know, the, the, everyone's got, you know, that, you know, if you couldn't read or write, you know, people that had literacy problems can now read a bit better, write a bit better, you know, general well-being has gone up at least pre-pandemic. What do you think now? What situation are we in coming out of this or going through it? Do you think we've digressed a lot or what, where do you think we're at? I don't really know. I mean, in the very beginning of this, I think it was, it was oddly, there was, even though it seemed very uncertain, there was oddly a little bit more certainty about what was right and what was wrong because there was predictions all over the place. Mm. Like some people were, like the New York Times, I think it was, said there was going to be 140 million deaths around the world. People were predicting 10 million deaths in the U.S. So just going through the math, I was able to show people that those models were, you know, at least the models themselves, the math was wrong. Uh, uh, you know, in the economy, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of uncertainty in the economy, but you know, the stimulus has helped that uncertainty, but 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't like to say one thing is, is good or bad. Uh, obviously, the world's changing. And I think you just have to focus on how you can change with it. And, and I don't. Yeah. So I, I don't think there's, you know, sometimes I, I would say, oh, it's too bad. This has had to happen. But regardless, it's happened. And now we just have to adjust and, and move forward. There is a lot of opportunity. The world has shifted. So many industries have changed that that automatically creates literally trillions of dollars of opportunity. Right. So I would say for the first time in a really long time, I'm excited about entrepreneurship now. Yeah, I'm with you all the way. I'm very invigorated during these times. So it's very exciting. Well, look, I thank you, James, for your time. You've been an absolute delight. And like I said, folks, follow him, tweet him, find, stalk him on LinkedIn, wherever he is. Um, but thank you again, James. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, January. I really appreciate this as well. It was good talking to you again after all these years. I'm glad you, you thought of me for this and, and thanks for inviting Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Indeed. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you.